human beings run on hope. We don't really function without it. When we talk about um, despair, for example, or when we talk about things that are mundane, all of that recognizes that there's something missing in the future tense. What I mean is there's a major difference between doing one action and not having a purpose in it over and over again and doing another action and understanding its value, understanding the consequence of it. Uh, farming is hard work, but it also produces crops, right? Uh, fear factor is not anything enjoyable, but maybe there's prize money at the end of it, right? This is, this is how we operate as human beings. And so sometimes we'll get to a place where we'll say things like, nothing is worth this. What are we saying? We're saying the hope doesn't outweigh the current circumstances. Okay? Now, Christianity is a religion of hope. It's a religion of hope because it points forward to what's coming. It paints a picture of uh, the final curtain call, if you will. It tells us the end of the story and that ending frames the life that we live. That's very much what Paul has been focusing on in 1 Corinthians 15. There are those in the church of Corinth, who Paul is writing to, who have begun to question the possibility or the reality or the literalness of a coming bodily resurrection. Culturally, in the world of Corinth, this was philosophically questionable because physical matter was seen as bad, it was seen as evil, it was seen as weak, it was seen as a little bit gross. And so, according to the Greek philosophers, salvation looked like an escape from that, okay? An out-of-body experience with a permanent life sentence. That's what they were looking for. The body was a prison and death was a release from that prison. And so the Corinthians are looking at the Christian message and they're going, well, when it says bodily resurrection, that's merely metaphor. When it says Jesus is returning, they're starting to play with these things. He's written this chapter to address that and we've been in it now. This is our fifth week. He's come at it from a lot of angles and I don't necessarily want to review this morning, but I want us to recognize as we get into the text this morning that he's pulling into the home stretch, okay? That he's sliding in to home here and um, that the, the orchestra is you know, coming up to a crescendo. He's coming to the final part of his argument. But ultimately, it comes down to this reality of why are these things important. And the first reason that Paul has reiterated over and over again is because it's true. And he's shown that this is an inescapable consequence of the fact that Jesus is alive an inescapable consequence of the fact that Jesus really died, was really buried, and was really resurrected. An inescapable consequence of the fact that we are now in Christ, and so our fate is bound up in his fate. He's laid all those things on the table, but it's not just that this is important because it's true, it's also this is important because anything short of this makes the Christian life unlivable. Okay? In other words... This is not something that's merely off in the distant, unpractical, has no bearing on our current life. It's just something to be assented to, to be believed in, doctrinally to agree with. Okay? Paul says, if you don't understand this, if you don't agree here, it will affect the way you work your job. It'll affect the way you raise your family. It'll affect the way you assess your life and measure it as success or failure. 
Last week we talked about how we have a tendency to set um, lower H hopes. I don't think that's the phrase I used, but, um, but we set all sorts of horizons for ourselves because that's, like I said, how we fuel ourselves. And so we don't just take a job, we take a job maybe for the paycheck, maybe for the success, maybe because we want to change our world. Whatever it is, there's a cause that we're after. There's a reason that we're moving towards. And this week I was thinking about one of the primary heaven on earths that we create for ourselves, if you will, in our culture is retirement. And I just want you to recognize this morning the incredible um, self-control people will demonstrate for the sake of retirement, right? They'll work harder, they'll spend less, they'll put up with more crap, they'll do whatever they have to with this recognition that one day, I'm going to leave this office and I will be my own person. One day I will be able to step into uh, retirement and enjoy rest. There's nothing wrong with that, but I just want you to recognize that whatever positives come along with retirement are all undone by death, okay? If you don't have a hope past your death date, then it's a hopeless hope. And this is not just something where I think anyone who's enjoying their retirement is crazy. It's actually, it's actually demonstrated in the people in their retirement as well. You finally arrive to that day, and it's not what you thought it was. It doesn't mean it's not good. It doesn't mean it's not restful. But have you ever seen the statistics on retirement? People who retire, retire die quicker than those who don't. Why? Because the human life runs on hope. And if that is your arrival, really, as good as it is, ultimately your body is tuned to say, that's it. This is it. This is what I was looking for. One more thing and then we'll get started. I saw a Canadian cartoon when I was a kid. And in the cartoon, this baby was born in a room and the room was just white space and there was a baby and then there was a door. And so you just watch as this baby kind of crawls around the room and, and explores the space, finds all the walls and the contours and the corners, uh, and then it kind of fades out and it fades back in, and he's a child. And now he's discovered that the most important thing in the room is the door, and he's reaching for the handle, but he can't reach it yet. And then you see him as a teenager, and he's trying to get the door open, but he doesn't have the strength. And... It keeps working all the way through his life, and he spends all of his adult life trying to get this door open. And at the end, you see him as an old man, and he's, he's reaching for the door, and he gives it one last effort, and his hand hands, you know, lands on the knob, and as he falls to his death, the knob turns, and the door opens, and an ironing board falls down, right? Whoever made that cartoon is picking up what I'm laying down, right? They get what we're talking about. There is this... There's this frustration in life. There's this Christmas comes, and then we have this weird internal disappointment. As excited as we've been all month, not that anything was bad, not that our parents are bad gift givers, not that our kids weren't super excited about the Christmas we put on for them, but here's how C.S. Lewis puts it, and then we'll read the text. He says, God has de designed life in such a way that there are many inns along the road but he's also designed it in such a way that we can't mistake any of them for home itself. Now, with that being said, let's read our passage this morning. We're going to pick up in verse 50 and read through the end of the chapter. 
I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable. This mortal body must put on the uh, immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gave us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Let's pray. God, I pray for a recalibration of our hearts this morning, that we would take the markers that we've set, the horizons in our life, the goals that we've placed, and that we would move the marker back all the way past the day we die to the consummation of all things, all the way past our retirement to the return of Jesus Christ, knowing that that hope is so profound and so great that that happening is so tremendous um, that it transforms failures into successes and weakness into strength, that it takes the meaningless and gives it permanent and weighty meaning. I ask that you do that in the name of Jesus Christ this morning. Amen. Paul opens this passage by making a clear statement uh, that's easy to misunderstand just because it's so clear. I'll show you what I mean. He says in verse 50, I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. What Paul has been arguing is that we need the resurrection to live with God. That as we are, we are unadapted to the environment of heaven, if you will. That there's things that need to change. But the reason why he's emphasizing this here is not just to make this contrast between the kingdom of God and the world we live in, between citizens of the world we live in, which includes us, and the kingdom of God where God is taking us, he, the reason why he's pointing this is because he wants what he wants to say next. Okay. He wants to point out here that this transformation is not merely for the dead. Notice what he says in verse 51. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. He says, let me let you in on a secret. Not all of us will die before Jesus returns, but the ones who are alive will still be transformed. Okay? And so it's not, like, um, it's not like the human life is one of endurance, and if you can just stay alive long enough, Jesus will return, and the people who are alive get the victory. Right? The dead are going to be raised, he says here. But also, just because you're alive when Jesus comes doesn't mean that you fulfill the prerequisites for a life with God. You still need to be changed. Now, when he calls it a mystery here, that can be confusing because the English word tends to have the idea of an enigma or a riddle. It, it sounds here like Paul is talking about something he doesn't know. 
Let's talk about something mysterious, something numinous, something unknown. But the word, as Paul uses it in the New Testament, which is closely related linguistically, it's mysterion in the Greek, okay? It's clearly where we get this idea of mystery. It doesn't mean unknowable or unsolvable, okay? What it actually means is only knowable if it's revealed, okay? And so when Paul's mentioning a mystery here, what he's saying is here is a new thing. Here's something that you wouldn't know unless God had told us. In fact, he makes this even clearer when he addresses this self-same topic to the church in Thessaloniki, okay? And so just for clarity's sake, I want to turn over there because he's got a purpose in mind here. There he's dealing just broadly with the doctrine. And so um, if you turn in your Bible towards the end, just a couple of books, you'll find 1 Thessalonians. If you see any book title that begins with T, just move backwards. 1 Thessalonians is the first and then 2 Thessalonians, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, Titus. They're all T's. Okay, so 1 Thessalonians 4. He's talking about the same topic, but in a different way. This is what he says in verse 13. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, the dead, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord. Do you see what he says there? He says, what I'm about to tell you is something that Jesus has told us directly. It's something new. It's a revelation. For this we tell you by a word of the Lord, what? Um that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord." Therefore, encourage one another with these words. And so, in both of these passages, he's pointing forward to this reality that theologians call the perusia because of the Greek word that's used over and over again, the coming, if you will, um, but just the second coming of Jesus, the return of Christ, okay? The fact that, uh, that uh, is mentioned when Jesus first ascends into heaven in the book of Acts. The angels speak to the disciples and they say, why are you looking up into the sky? Don't you know he will return just as he left? Okay. Now, I find that modern American Christianity doesn't have, a lot of uh, doesn't have a lot of room for this idea of the second coming of Christ, for the return of Christ. And so I just, before we look at this text any closer, I just want to set the framing and help you to understand something. The return of Jesus Christ is mentioned over 300 times in the New Testament. It's referenced in every single New Testament book, all the Gospels, all the letters, Revelation. The only exceptions are Philemon, 2nd and 3rd John, which are all a paragraph long. Okay? This idea that Jesus is coming back is not just a doctrine of the early church. It is the lens through which they viewed all the doctrine is the lens through which they viewed their entire life. That's why we find in the book of Romans, he says, Maranatha, which means come, 
Come, Lord Jesus. That's why when we get to the book of Revelation and we read about all the horrors of the final chapter of earth, and John at the end of it says, even still, come, Lord Jesus. Okay. This was the hope of the early church. Not a political reformation. Not, uh, not safety and security and a white picket fence. It was this. And so Paul is talking about this in Thessalonians, and he basically touches on all the things we've been reading in Romans 15, that there is going to be a transformation and that those who have fallen asleep, we don't have to despair because they will be raised from the dead. And he says that they will be raised first and then we also will be caught up in the air and as it said in the book of Romans, transformed. Okay. According to the New Testament, Jesus is coming back. Okay. That's part one. The second question we ask naturally then is, when? And that's where Paul goes in the rest of this First Thessalonian passage in chapter 5. So I want to read this and then we'll get back to Romans. He says in verse 1 here, Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you, for you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. And so he he, he pre-guesses their question. When is this going to happen? And he reminds them, he says, you yourselves know that the day will come like a thief in the night. Now, why do they know that? Because Jesus talks about it in the Gospels, and he says just that same thing. There are those who read the New Testament and make the mistake of assuming that because the first century church the ones who wrote and read the New Testament first. Because they lived in such anticipation, such expectation of this, that they were expecting it to happen in their lifetime, and when it didn't, they were disappointed and had to readjust. That's mistaking these passages. The Bible doesn't proclaim that the return of Jesus is immediate, but imminent. And there's a difference in those two words. Immediate means right now. Imminent means at any moment. Okay? If you want to look at it on a prophetic time scale, there is nothing that needs happen before what we've just read this morning. Okay? It's the next thing on God's great agenda. Now, just recognize we can do the same thing. We can go into the Old Testament and we can start with the prophecies that God gives of the coming of coming Messiah, and there's a lot of time before that happens, okay? But if it's going to be like a thief in the night, then, and this is where I want to start this morning, recognize it's going to be an interruption. Do I know when Jesus is going to return? Do you want me to pull out a calendar and circle a date? I'm not going to do that. Jesus himself said, no man knows the day or the hour. Do I know that it's going to be surprising when it happens? I can double down on that. I'll put all my chips there, okay? Here's why it matters. One of the reasons why it's a terrible idea to set short-term goals and put all your chips on it, to put all of your ultimate, is none of those things are guaranteed. Now, even if you're not a Christian this morning and the things we're talking about seem a little bit weird, death is a pretty good analogy here. It works effectively the same way. 
For all of us, death is imminent in the sense that you don't know when or how or, or why it's going to happen. And so when we set our plans, there's always this open-handedness. This is why James says, hey, you want to be smart about making plans? Don't say, tomorrow I'll go to this city and do this type of business. He says, if the Lord wills. One major aspect of if the Lord wills is if I'm still alive tomorrow. Okay? But with, with this idea of the return of Christ, it's going to be an interruption. And so here's, here's why this matters. Because it means that the schooling that you're doing now, you may never graduate. It means that the promotion you're working towards, you may never get. It means that the family that you're hoping to have or the spouse that you're hoping to find, you may never find. It means that the retirement that you're investing towards because you're a responsible adult, you may never taste. And the Christian message says that's okay. Because even if you don't arrive, the arrival's taken care of. It says the thing that makes all of those things worthwhile is found in a different place. And so you don't have to round the bases to win the game. Okay. So with that being said, let's go back to the book of Romans. I'm sorry, 1 Corinthians. Picking up again in verse 51, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. Okay. He says, let me let you in on a secret. When Jesus returns, as we saw in 1 Thessalonians, the dead in Christ will rise first, and by rise there, it it doesn't mean just out of the ground, but be resurrected, receive new bodies like we've been learning about in this chapter, but also those who are alive will be changed. And he gives us a timeline, verse 52. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. Now this word for moment is where we get our word atom. Okay? In the Greek mind, the atom was the smallest unbreakable reality. We know there's smaller things now. We know, in fact, when you break an atom, cool stuff happens. right? Uh, but when it says here, in an atom, in an atmos, it means that quick. However small you can cut a segment of time, and no smaller, that, in a moment, this is going to happen. This uh, change, this transition from the world as we know it to the world to come. Okay? And then it says, in the twinkling of an eye, and that word there, twinkling, is drawn from the influence of the King James Bible, and sometimes translators just aren't willing to fight the fight. If you've memorized this passage as a kid, if you've heard it quoted in sermons, it was a twinkling of an eye, so we'll leave it. But it's basically a blink, okay? A twinkling of an eye isn't really a measure of time in modern English, right? It, it has to do with, it has to do with um, warm fuzzies, right? The idea here, though, is a blink, okay? You know, you know when you catch something in the corner of your eye and you just glance and look back because you're focused on something? That's the measurement of time that it's talking about here. instantaneous now that gives us another point that's worth addressing the change that we most need the one that goes from corruption to incorruption the one that goes from death to life is seen here as instantaneous now that doesn't deny the fact that in your life by the power of God you can grow you can change you can have some of that life now but the final stretch which is the biggest, 
That's going to be instantaneous. We have to keep this in mind. We as Christians believe in progress, but we also believe that what's final and necessary requires something way more drastic than just one step after another. Even in your life, don't get caught up in this idea of evolution that just says if you just keep trying, you'll get better. Okay. Paul, at the end of his life, sees himself as the chief of sinners. That's as far as he's gotten in all of his you know, 40 years of ministry and growth with the Lord and all the things he's learned. That's how he sees himself. But as it says here, in that moment, transformation, every chain broken. In that moment, every weakness overcome. In that moment, no more regret. This is just another way of reminding us of the fact that salvation, according to Christians, is not a self-project. It's something that Jesus is going to do. And so as we talked about last week, the final stretch of your sanctification, the final stretch of you becoming like Jesus, the final stretch of God fixing the problem is your death. Congratulations. Way, way to work so hard. It's because it all weighs on the shoulders of Jesus. And then he does give us a time stamp. Okay? He tells us how long, but the last one here isn't how long. It says at the last trumpet. Okay? The question becomes, what, what is the last trumpet? And if you were paying attention when we were reading in 1 Thessalonians, we saw the same thing. There he said, with a loud crow, with the cry, uh, cry, with the voice of an archangel, with the final trumpet. Okay? The idea here is most likely comparable to the buzzer at the end of a basketball game. Okay? The emphasis here is not on the um, sound of the end of the world. Not a bang, but with a whimper, as it says in the poem. It's not the sound here, it's the finality of it, okay? We could, we could put this with a different metaphor and say when the curtain closes and the show is over, right? That's the idea here. And so he says that's when it's going to happen. He says, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. For, verse 53, this perishable body must put on the imperishable and this mortal body must put on immortality, if we're to live in an uncorrupted world, if we're to live eternally, then something's got to change. That's why he uses the word must here. We can't just naturally step into heaven as we are any more than we can live underwater without a change, without gills. But here's the point, verse 54. This is where he's going. This is what he wants us to understand. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? And so he says, when this happens, then these words will be fulfilled. And he quotes from the book of Isaiah in Isaiah 25, and then he borrows the wording of a passage in Hosea 13. But what will be fulfilled? Specifically what it says in Isaiah 25, death is swallowed up in victory. Okay. Now I love the imagery of that verse. Why swallowed up? Why doesn't it just say conquered? Why doesn't it just say death will be killed? Okay. There's a passage in Proverbs, and it says there are three things, yes, even four, that are unsatisfiable. And the very first one is the grave. 
the way that the uh, proverbial writer there sees life is that death is just this giant mouthed monster that is never satisfied, that is always hungry, that consumes everything you love. And the problem is, once again, whatever you set as, set as the benchmark of your life, as the finish line, as the goal and the thing that substantiates and makes life worth living, wherever you set that, death eats it. It eats it alive. It eats it whole. It swallows it entirely. Death will take, apart from the message we're hearing here, everyone you love, everything that matters, everything you've ever built, everything you've worked on, and will swallow it whole. It's like the nothing in the never-ending story. That's how we as Christians view death. And the incredible thing is uh, the way this wording is put, it's not merely that death will stop eating. It's not merely that death will be defeated, but literally that it will be swallowed up, okay? And so it's not just that death comes to an end, it's that life overwhelms it. That what Jesus has done has enveloped death so entirely, it's non-existent. Death is swallowed up in victory. And I, I still believe, I said it last week, I still believe it this week, we don't always get the full strength of that we don't always we we're so anesthetized with all of these other smaller hopes we're so satisfied with all of these little things we don't realize how horrible the reality of death is and the truth of corruption and the taint of sin as we did our psalm reading this morning how did you feel about the way the psalmist talks about his sin this morning did it seem familiar too often it doesn't. He says it's like I'm pierced with arrows, I'm putrid from head to toe. It sounds like he's laying it on a little thick, right? We don't always see these things. We hide death from our life. We set these smaller goals. But when he says here, death is swallowed up in victory, that is the high point. That is the climax of Christian teaching. That's what makes life worth living. Suffering worth enduring, relationship worth having, work worth fighting through. And then he takes the words of Hosea and he mocks death. He says, oh death, where is your victory now? Right? Death, where is your sting? Here we find another image for death and the idea is of a, of a, of a poisonous monster like a scorpion. Right? That's the idea of a sting here. Remember we're writing in a Middle East culture. Uh, and so the question here is, what now? You can't rob me anymore. You can't take what I have. When Jesus says, stop storing up treasures where rust and thieves can break in and where moths can eat and destroy, this is what he's talking about. He's saying, make an investment that's eternal. But he says, death, where is your victory? And then he says, death, where is your sting? And then he clarifies, he says in verse 56, the sting of death is sin. And so he takes the time here to say, why is death such a problem? It's a problem because of sin. This is a cruel analogy, so don't hold me to it, but just think of this for a second. Imagine you had a scorpion and you remove the sting of it at its end of its tail. Okay, it can pinch you, sure, I'm not necessarily going to pick up a scorpion even if it doesn't have a sting, but it can't poison you. 
That's the idea here. My pastor, Wayne Taylor, liked to talk about this in, in, um, in the illustration of a bee. Because bees have a stinger, but it's a one-time use. And so he would point out that it's as if the sting of this bee death that's so threatening to us, Jesus takes on himself. He dies that death. There's no death for us to die. And I think that's a helpful illustration of what's going on here. But once again, if you want to understand the world according to Christians, here it is. Something's wrong with the world and death is the evidence. Okay? But that is just the symptoms. If you want to understand the diagnosis, the sting of death, the reason it infects us, the reason death is a problem for us is because of sin. It's because sin rebels against the God who is life. Sin breaks the connection with the giver of all good things. Sin alienates us from life itself. So the sting of death is sin, and then he adds that the power of sin is the law. When he says the law here, he clearly means the law, right? Not like a police officer on a primetime television show, not like merely just the Ten Commandments. He's talking about for all human beings because obviously if sin needs power to poison and we all die, then this is the law in the big sense. What he's pointing out here is simply this, that it is the commandments themselves that gives sin its power. First, the power to punish. First, that's, that's the fact, is there really is a God who has given us the rules of life. Just as an aside, they're good rules. They're helpful. They move towards human thriving, towards human flourishing. But aside from that, the fact that those laws exist is the reason there's consequences, right? If you're driving in a country where there's no posted speed limit, you're not going to be pulled over for breaking the speed limit. But there really is the law. In fact, Paul pushes it in Galatians even further. He says, I wish it was just the fact that the rules themselves mean there's consequences. He says it's worse than that. He says what's so wrong with us is we read the rules and sometimes that's why we break them because they're there. He says the greatest evidence of the power of sin in our life is the fact that we hear a rule and we go, okay, I wasn't even thinking about walking on the grass. I am now, right? That's what he means here when he says the power of sin is the law. The law was not to bring death. It's to show us life, to give life, but it had no power to do so. And because of the problem of sin, because of the great issue of the human condition, it actually just brings death quicker and faster and fuller and pushes us into a cycle. Okay. And so he adds that clarification here, but it's an aside, so we need to go back and we need to hear the victory cry of the Christian life. Do you want to understand Christian hope? This is what it is. Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? Okay. It means it will be finally overcome. It means it will be completely overcome. And it means that already you were spared from its consequence. The author of Hebrews puts it this way. It says that we haven't just been saved from death, but from the fear of death. How does that change your life? In this passage of Isaiah that he quotes here, it says that on this mountain God's going to prepare a feast and that he will remove the shroud that lays over all people. And then he says, and death will be swallowed up in victory. What is the shroud? We don't really 
cover our dead necessarily like they used to, but you know the image, right? You get it, that we lay a sheet over the body. That's the idea, that's the shroud. We all live under that reality. And sometimes we're not aware of it, but have you noticed how often we've been talking about a culture about existential dread, right? This idea that sometimes we're just overwhelmed by the meaninglessness of life. Sometimes we're just overwhelmed by the reality that, that life could end at any moment, and so we need to look at more cat pictures, right? And y- you laugh, but that's how we usually use the phrase, is we've got to find a way to distract ourselves from the horrible reality that is life, okay? Christians are not optimists who go, oh, come on, it's not that bad. No, it's worse. But it won't be because of what Jesus has done. Death is swallowed up in victory. And so now we get to the real point that Paul wants to make. So what? This is what's coming. How does that affect today? The first thing we need to see is in verse 57. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Whatever your metaphor for life is, what it looks like to win at life is a victory. And what he says here is we should be grateful as Christians because it's already been given to us. The game is already won, won. the clock can run down, but it's not going to change the scoreboard. That's the reality we live in. This is what prompts Paul in the book of Romans to say, because of that, we are more than conquerors. How are we more than conquerors? We're conquerors up front. Now, not just when the war ends, but now we already live as victors. Not because we don't experience the effects of death, but because we know all of those effects temporary and will be reversed not because we no longer suffer and so we live this imperishable impenetrable life now but because we know that there is nothing that can separate us from the love of God in this final consequence okay the victory is guaranteed there's an occasion where Israel is fighting a war and God tells them to go to war with a praise band right up front singing and worshiping the Lord that's the life we live The battle may not even be raging its hottest in your life right now. You're still a victor. You can be despairing and feeling the full weight of reality and and just crying out to God for release. You're still a victor. So the first thing we should do is we should praise God. We should give thanks. The Christian life is one filled with gratitude specifically because God has given the greatest and fullest gift up front. And so he says, thanks be to God who did this, who gave us the victory in the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me say it again. The Christian message is not one that you can fix this. It's not one that if you follow these rules or do these things or go this way or listen to this teacher or do go through these motions that everything will be okay. No, God has won the war on our behalf and given us the victory. He continues on and he says in verse 58, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Let's deal with the first two there, steadfast and immovable. What's the difference between those two words? They sound pretty similar, don't they? Be steadfast and be immovable. I was reflecting on it last night and I think there is a difference and here's what I think it is, okay? Steadfast means to stand still. 
It means that we are fully in the power of even though this light of the coming day is shining, stepping back into the darkness and living if it, it weren't so, right? Being steadfast means staying put. Steadfast means not moving away. And that's the danger of the Corinthian church. They're, trying, they're starting to water down and relegate these things. And Paul says, no, stand still, stay put. The metaphor that James uses for heresy and for false teaching is us being tossed to and fro by wind and waves, right? And he says, no, stay stand fast, steadfast, stand still on this truth. Why? Because it's true, obviously, but for another reason, because it changes the life you live now. Because you are already the victor in Jesus Christ. Because you are already forgiven in Jesus Christ. Because your destiny is already secured in Jesus Christ. So be steadfast. The second one is immovable. What's the difference there? Immovable means don't let anything else move you. Right? Steadfast has to do with your own will. It has to do with you staying put. Immovable has to do with you resisting the influence of things around you. There's a lot of things that come into your life all the time that push you in different directions. There's this scene in the M. Night Shyamalan movie, The Village, where a blind girl believes in this man so much that even though she knows danger is all around her, and at any moment the monster could get her, she knows he'll come for her, and she's just standing there with her hand out in the darkness. I hate that scene. It makes me sick to my stomach. And I've seen it multiple times. I know how it ends, but I also know what it's like to live in the tension. There's a sense where we totally live in the tension with our hands out in the dark, but he who is promised is faithful. So don't be moved. Don't scramble to figure things out, to settle for second best because you're not sure if this whole Christianity thing is going to pay off. Be steadfast, be immovable. And then he continues and he says, on top of that, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. A couple of things here, just putting together the pieces. First off, he uses the word labor here and not just the word work, okay? Labor implies hard work. It implies sweat. In fact, when he says labor, he's literally drawing the line between work as it was intended in Genesis 2 and work as we experience it in Genesis 3, right? In Genesis 3, there's a curse, and so now the earth is hard to work. Now there's such a thing as sweat and such a thing as thorns and such a thing as death. That is still where we live as Christians, okay? God doesn't change the world we live in when we become Christians. He changes us. And so when he uses the word uh, labor here or toil, that's the work that we're called to, and that's okay. The second thing I want you to notice is that he says not only should we be doing the work of the Lord, he says we should be abounding in it, right? What's the idea there? It means don't just do it, do it abundantly, overwhelmingly throw your back into it why he says knowing that in the lord your labor is not in vain now when he uses those phrases in the lord and not in vain here he's tying the whole chapter together and i know it's been a month since we started the chapter so you may not remember but the challenge he gave the church in corinth is look if christ is not risen then your faith is in vain it's empty 
He says, but indeed Christ has risen, and he walks through this, and he says, even your work now is not in vain. And then he adds here, in the Lord, that's the philosophy of this whole thing, that our resurrection is bound up in the resurrection of Christ, that our destiny is bound up in, our, in his destiny, that our inheritance is bound up in his inheritance. And so all of this is in the Lord. And so what does this mean? He says, therefore, abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain. It is totally possible for hard work to be wasted. Effort doesn't always equal value. Can we talk about massive multiplayer online role-playing games for a second? Just because I think the illustration is apt. It's pretty easy for most of us to recognize that every hour spent and every piece of gold or platinum or virtual currency earned and every treasure bought or sought or won isn't real. Is that not the case with the rest of our life? Are we not capable? Just because we consume another cheeseburger, does that mean it's really a real tangible win? Just because we build an empire, does that mean that it's lasting and permanent and total? The work that you do in the Lord doesn't matter if it's mundane or if it's respected. Doesn't matter if you do it well criticized or with recognition. Doesn't matter if you do it barely holding on in weakness or if you do it with all of your strength. It's not empty. It's not vain. It's not a waste of time. You will never regret it. There is no volatility in the market of the kingdom of God. Every investment you make will pay off. Why? Because death will be swallowed up in victory. Because corruption will be overwhelmed by incorruption. Because God is producing life in you, and that life is life eternal. Let's pray. Father, I know for some of us this morning, the problem may be despair. We're struggling to understand if it's really worth continuing, maybe in a particularly difficult relationship, maybe our jobs, maybe even life itself. But for many more of us, the problem isn't despair, it's these, it's these little hopes. It's that we settle for too little that we aspire for horizons that are too short-sighted and don't deal with this big problem. And so I pray for those who are in the darkness of despair that the undefeatable hope of the fact that you will return and set all things right, I pray that that light would shine into our darkness. And for those of us who have filled our house with candles and closed our windows to the shining sun, I pray that we'd be discontent. I pray that we would sense the eye strain of trying to live life with a wrong perspective and that we would flee into the outdoors, into the full warmth of the sun. We are more than conquerors in Jesus Christ. We are victors 
in your victory. We are inheritance, are inheritors of the inheritance of a loving father. And that means that we live a life of hope, a life of steadfastness and faithfulness, and a life of hard work, knowing that our work is not in vain. Renew and realign and recalibrate our hearts with these truths this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. As we respond this morning, the first thing we can do is the first thing that we talked about. We can praise the God who sent a Savior like this.